In this episode, we discuss blended PUA riders, other noise in the IBC community, and the infinite banking concept for nonprofits. Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. And we're glad you're here, as usual, per usual. No, uh, no topic, but there's so many things to talk about. It's very easy for you us to always say we in. have no topic. We have topics. Well, we didn't. look at these notes. Those are notes. Listen, <laughs> I have no topics, right? I mean, we have topics. I'm just saying it's unscripted. How's that? An unscripted conversation. That is unscripted. There's always something to talk about. Look, this unscripted, is no uh, Bitcoin IRA ads, no um, online life insurance term life policy quote generator ads. No Patreon None of that. account. Hmm. <laughs> but if you want to send so money, just give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> no, just pay a premium. I don't even need to. <sighs> hmm. All the libertarian podcasters out there who, and some a couple of advisors will will give me some props. They'll be like, oh, I, you know, because they listen, right? And so they hear. What do they know, give you props about? I'm calling out the uh, other uh, the other people they listen to oriented <laughs> podcasters who you know you got to buy the socks or you got to buy the mattress or you got to. Uh, I mean, God bless. Them. I guess that's for some people. You well, know, I'm, I'm glad. Pr- just I'm, I'm proud to do a podcast where because there's a business behind us, you know, where we're profitable and able to, you know generate revenue independently you know that allows us to have a podcast a show where we can just come and talk yeah, and but share you, the things that we know aren't we doing this for lead generation i mean when you get into the industry they're like <clears throat> well that's what y'all are doing james you're just ginning up yeah leads yep. and- just like all the other well you know, I don't know anybody else who's talking about <laughs> infinite banking for an hour hour and a half up to two hours on a regular basis without you know consistently pointing to a special url or whatever to go i don't know anybody else doing that so uh if no, this I, is lead generation it doesn't look like what counts for lead generation out there okay no no listen you have a steady flow of people calling you we have a steady flow of people calling us <clears throat> and i'm not ashamed of that i don't see why there's a it's part of that anti-capitalist mentality where mm-hmm. you've got to be nervous about selling, monetizing, profiting from the thing that you also believe in. The idea that profit and morality or profit and good deeds can't go together. Oh yeah, right? the, the, yeah that they're which is toxic opposing. and explicitly incorrect, right? It's the exact reverse, you know. Um, no, preach, preach, well, I'm, young I'm man. Not, I'm not. I'm not. I don't shy away from that at all. If that, that bothers somebody, <laughs> don't call. <laughs> you know. <clears throat> I like uh, the engagements with, and I answer this question quite often. And as a matter of fact, it's coming up on a Q and A. James, how do you get paid? You know, it's like, look, I'm a capitalist. You're a capitalist. The free market, free small business, big business, free markets. Um, is is good. Capitalism is good. As a matter of fact, besides Christianity, right? Capitalism has has expanded the the uh, goodness of man's knowledge mm. for centuries. There's been look, who? How did the hotels become created? How did the hospitals? get created mm. how did even the trading markets 
come into existence because somebody's making a profit. Yeah. Right. Profits are good. So, you know, I'll just answer the question since I brought it up. It's like, I get paid in U.S. dollars, <laughs> much like you do. I get paid for the work I do, yeah. much like you do. And uh, I get paid, and you do too, by the life insurance companies' commissions. Yeah, right. That's really the, I don't, uh, and, and look, you get paid commissions on guaranteed products. Yep. And the commissions are paid from the general revenue fund of the insurance companies that you represent. Right. <clears throat> then I'm an investment advisor representative when I write um, equities or accounts, investment accounts that have risk in them. I get paid fees and they're deducted directly from the account holder's account. And at the end of the day, I love to say, because it's true, the consumer pays for everything. And so I want the opportunity to go pay for value. And at the end of the day, when it comes to this podcast, I believe we're delivering, and I'm a humble guy, I believe we're delivering a lot of value to the infinite banking footprint in particular, and then into the financial world in general. And then might I say to the libertarian and the Austrians indirectly. (laughs) Tell me where I'm wrong. You're not. You're not. Okay. Well, thanks for letting me share that. Yeah. And so you don't you don't want to work with anybody that's not profitable, do you? When you I mean, go get I, your suit made, do you want them to be around next year? Of course. You know, I I mean, I don't get custom made suits anymore. <laughs> I don't have to do <laughs> well, any of that now that I don't work for any of those captive companies. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can dress how I want. Uh, it's a liberating lifestyle. Flip flops, captive today? folks. I have nice shoes on today. Although normally I do have flip flops on. Okay. Um, you know, I think there are two kinds of consumers of infinite banking concept, educational material and media. Uh, there's the people who have watched every episode and then there's those who haven't. And, and talking. <laughs> they've either watched our podcast or they haven't. <laughs> they I love that. We're talking about classification. That sounds you know, logically consistent. It's either you know, either or. Uh, and the, you either are you know, or you are not. Trying to walk in Nelson's legacy and being positive, focusing on the light. You know, I get had a guy uh, this morning email me. We're at the end of the process. He's about to submit his application to pay a substantial amount of premium. Will he know who he is if I say today's March? Uh, well, his, his name's Mike. Okay. That's, we can get that. All right. right. Okay. So Mike knows who he is. And hello, Mike. Thanks for listening. And he uh, asked this. He asked this question, and it's not. It's a typical kind of question. Not this. I mean, it was nice to hear this specific rendition of it, but same kind of question. You know, because uh, he has a timeline about when he's going to get started. You know, he's not going to. The policy won't be issued right away because he's got some travel plans. Uh, and he's like, you know, what? How can I pay you now? Because I don't want you to have to wait until the policy is issued and I'm paying premium for you to get paid. He's, wow. he's thinking, yes. Mike, I love you. Yeah, he's thinking about when I'm going to get paid because he knows what's going on. And we haven't even talked about, right? This was unsolicited, unprompted, wow. didn't bring it up, never do, right? But that's the kind of question that you get from guess which group he falls into. Oh, the consistent. The listener. one who is a consistent, yeah. So, I, bet, I bet he's listened to some episodes more than once. Probably has. You know, I've listened. I don't listen to a lot, right? But whenever we're finished um, recording an episode, 
on any given Saturday, about 90% of the time, I get up and say, oh my gosh, people need to listen to that more than one time. That's how good I think they are. But now I don't confirm that because I don't go back and listen to most of them. So. <laughs> well, I do. I listen to all of them just to, you know, quality control. And frankly, I don't hear it coming from anywhere else. So yeah. uh, that'd be okay. Don't knock repetition. It's okay to go ahead and listen more than once. And, um, you know, we do this on purpose. It's intentional. We believe that this is, you know, we want to be best in class and believe that that's what we do. I mean, it's... As opposed to being mediocre. Well, yeah. I don't... Like we've talked about before, my own harshest critic, you right. know, it's got to pursue excellence. Often is what holds back the completion of various projects, but, you know... So what'd you tell Mike? Just send me a check? I haven't responded to the email yet. No, <laughs> no it's okay. I mean, that's part of the... I know that, you know, we get paid when we get paid. And that's... Uh, and the pay is going to come, right? You produce the value, oh, no right? Question. They're going to benefit. They see the benefit. They understand. They've done the education. They know what's going on. They know what to do because they know what's going on. So, you know, and so, so they, it will come. It will come. We talk about that. The uh, inside the industry, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> you know, everything in the life insurance in the financial world is either based on production, i.e., how many premium dollars or how many cases you write. Um, or how much in asset under management you acquire and get you know paid to manage. And every worker is worthy of their hire, right? Uh, who, who do you work with, right? What vendor, what restaurant? I mean, who do you come in contact with and you exchange money with? Who in your world do you want to work for free? No one. No one. Don't, do you want them to be paid more than most of the time what they're getting paid like when i go to a restaurant or wherever everywhere i go i want them to be paid the most right that's possible and why because i'm a capitalist right because i'm not an anti-cap i'm not a socialist i'm not i mean it's a free market the more money that's flowing the better off the economy is just ask federal reserve <laughs> right. <laughs> Just saying. Genuine money. Uh, yeah. So in the industry, whenever the life insurance companies, and, and I've done this a long time, and we've talked about this many times, we haven't talked about this maybe in a recorded public format, but the life insurance companies, there's a couple of things they want to know um, from the average all-American producer, quote unquote agent, is how much you're going to write in premium mm. dollars or how many cases are you going to write? Your favorite people when they come around asking how much you're, you know, James, how, how much premium are you going to write this year? Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, if I'm polite, I don't tell them to leave my office. All right. Um, when I am polite, I'm like, um, as much as I can mm -hmm. or as much as I do, it is what it is. I don't focus on the premium, the case size, the case amount. Um, I focus on the work because mm. the numbers follow. Mm -hmm. All of that other stuff takes care of itself. If you're working and you're working hard and you're working correctly, which is you know going beyond just providing value and service, if you're solving somebody's problems- A legitimate need. In a legitimate way, at a very high level, not mediocre, not practicing on you, hoping that it works, not believing 
things that may or may not happen. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about you've done your homework, you've done the vetting, you've got the experience, you've got the knowledge within your ability. I don't practice outside of my ability, right? And I know the limits of my ability, mm-hmm. and I embrace them. And whenever any situation calls for expertise outside of my abilities, by golly, I know some of the best attorneys in North America, right? Um, estate planning, elder law planning, advanced whomever they are right right um so i'm just saying whenever you deliver real value um people want you to be paid and they want you to be paid properly and they want to have you as a resource mm-hmm. um which most people in the financial world that's almost a, a forgotten requirement from the from the professional side of actually being a resource for your clients. Half the time, that's the question I get. Ryan, before we you know, get going here, I just wanna know like what what does it look like once I've got my policy? You yeah. know, what's Am the, I gonna what's pay the a premium and then you like? disappear from the face of the earth? Yeah. Which is what their experience typically is. That's about. the experience, that's the stereotype, it's what's out there. So I get it, I understand. I tell people, our relationship is gonna look like however you want it to look like, within reason. Right. It, first, there's a couple ground rules. One, it will be independent. You will not be relying upon me. I will not accept reliance upon me. This policy will not go in force. You will not pay a premium if I believe that you have to be dependent upon me to manage that policy. Right. Well, We're gonna, that doesn't mean they have to know how to manage that policy to the nth degree to be. And I'm not beginning. saying that. And I tell people, I'm not, I don't expect you to become a master of life insurance. I don't exactly. expect you to go get a PhD in life insurance or in Austrian economics. But you need to have an essential understanding of the features of this policy as they pertain to you and what your contractual authority is. It so, didn't. so that if I walk outside and get hit by a bus tomorrow or get the coronavirus, then <laughs> I don't. You don't have to worry about managing what you own. Right. right. And, and that I, essential understanding will quickly develop into a practical understanding right. and knowledge because of your resource, you being a resource. Well, because of the education that we provide. And then as time goes on, as capital becomes accumulated, as opportunities of both the entrepreneurial investment oh stripe are attracted to these individuals and they need assistance in evaluating these opportunities or evaluating what uh, financing a route to take to make this or that purchase, we can discuss that that's just on a con- independent, mutually beneficial grounds, right? right? But that's just a continuation of their education and all of our educations. Right. That's right? just a continuation, which is a beautiful thing in the free market, you being a capitalist, them being a capitalist. I mean, most of your people are capitalists, aren't they? Whether they know it or not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying that you get exposed to this idea, and then the the education is really just beginning. Yeah. It continues on. And uh, knowledge is a defense against dependency, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Well, and that's what I shared with a gentleman earlier this week, talking about stories from the front lines. You know, we had gone through that conversation. What's the relationship look like after the, after the policy is received? And uh, so I shared with him what I shared with you. And I said, you know, you're gonna, I think you're gonna find that as time goes on, as you manage your premiums, as you make your policy loan repayments, as you go, as you actually do these things yourself, you will find that this is a lot simpler than it might look like from the outside, right? It is so simple. 
But it's easy, to, look, if I'm on YouTube, and you probably are, right, and you look right over here to the left at all those suggested videos, mm. about 95% of them you should skip over, my opinion, if you want a shortcut to the truth. Spend as much time, I tell people, cause, you know, they're like, oh, well, of course you're gonna say that, you know, you shouldn't be watching other people's stuff. Listen, spend as much time as you like. <laughs> Yeah. As much time as you like. I have no, you know, there's a lot of people in this country who need a lot of help. The need for capital, the need to control the banking function is a severe gaping hole in the financial strategy of just about everybody. everybody. And so, you know, if Unless someone- you're practicing infinite banking well, you know, for some time. And how many people, you know, one, two, <laughs> of all, you know, so if people want to go spend time learning about what other people are promoting, that is different from Nelson Nash becoming your own banker, the infinite banking concept, go ahead. If you want the blended term PUA riders, if you want convertible term, if you want a, a tight policy where 10, five, eight, six percent of the premiums go into the base, if you, if you want a mutilated policy design, there appears to be, from what I can see on YouTube and online in general, a lot of people who are willing to indulge that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just not, right? So people who want Nelson Nash, who want the infinite banking concept as it's expounded in becoming your own banker, where there's not one single mention of a blended term, there's not even a term writer in becoming your own banker, right? So for people, who, for people who want what Nelson taught, you know, I can help that person all day and it's gonna be a phenomenal relationship. Can't help these other people? Well, I think that's what we're doing right now. I mean, I, I just wrote an article about the blended term PUA writer uh, and what's wrong with it, you know, but it always makes that rate of return look really good in the first year, second year, right? I can compete with cash. All that's doing is indulging people's unwillingness to capitalize and unwillingness to rethink their thinking. Look, if you want to purposefully violate Nelson's rules, just don't call yourself an IBC practitioner. Oh, thank you very much. Thank right? you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they don't mention his name, so... But, oh, banking, banking, I have a life insurance license. I'm not beating them up. I'm not beating anyone in particular up. Look, they're, like I said earlier, they're coming up over there on the suggested videos. Um, but let's talk, let's unpack that a little bit. The, um, the blended PUA. I spoke a little bit about that in Birmingham. 2020, Nelson Nash Institute, IBC Think Tank. And Your it, talk. My talk, and, I'm, and it's going to be released to our clients, right, because the general public needs to hear that, too. I mean, I encouraged uh, IBC practitioners not to fall off into the noise, among other things, and, and remember and understand your, your, your profession, your product, the history, the legacy of the Nelson Nash Institute. Um, but I, I spoke about the blended PUA in, in concert or in addition to other you know, of these ideas that are being promoted under the guise of the infinite banking concept. Um, and it's just a, it's just like the, the, the latest version of the noise, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, 15 years ago, it was pay a premium for four years and don't pay anymore. Well, I, and I think somebody stumbled across Nelson Nash's infinite banking concept, the becoming your own banker book, equipment financing, where you just illustrated premium payments for four years. Mm -hmm. Right. And then because, somebody can read that and say, oh, this is the way you do that, right? So it's pay a premium for four years. And, no more. and then um, the reduced paid up, RPU, right? Which is a contractual right non-forfeiture option that you have only in 
dividend paying or, or whole life insurance that does not mm-hmm. exist in universal life, which is another noise that yeah. is is really rearing reappearing because of the and has so for the last several years this equity index universal life. All right, but then the latest seems, and we talked about laddering and stacking previously, mm-hmm. leveraging every you know, last bit of cash value you possibly can to buy another policy, to buy another policy, to buy another policy. And, you know, somebody's getting paid in all of these machinations. Mm-hmm. And somebody's benefiting. Mm-hmm. And the life insurance company is benefiting, number one. And the agent's benefiting, number two. But with these examples that we're talking about today, it is at the expense of the consumer. Generally. They all are. Yes. So I want to make a couple of points. because so, We're talking about a blended term PUA rider. You said a blended PUA rider. Let's be very clear about the terminology. A lot of these companies, because it's a you know product of the financial engineers at these the life major insurance companies created the blended PUA. This right. is not, you know, yeah. It's not as if policy owners got together, banded together and petitioned for a you know new one-year renewable term rider to be thrown in with their PUA rider. So again, being very specific about the terminology, every company has a different name for what this is called. Well, the PUA right? riders, the paid-up editions riders, um, are all have different terminology between the insurance companies. Yeah. <clears throat> but <clears throat> Excuse me, but then they... A lot of them, most of them, have come up with this blended PUA. So there's the the PUA rider, paid up editions rider. I call it a, I call it just a pure PUA rider. Okay, a pure PUA rider, yeah. which has I no. Think that gets the point across. I want the ability to buy additional paid up death benefit at a given point in time, and that's it. That's what that rider includes. And that's a pure ma- PUA rider. And the majority of the premium goes to cash. Vast majority. Right. And death benefit. Dollar for dollar, typically some variation of death benefit. Like if I pay a dollar in a pure PUA mm-hmm. rider, a pure paid up additions rider, I'm going to have, uh, there's a there's a charge. Let me say that every company has a charge on the PUA. Yeah. Well, rider. we should cover that. There's <laughs> a, there is an expense charge every time you pay a PUA premium. You're getting something of value. It's adding additional paid up death benefit. There's a fee for that, right? It's nothing unusual, right? When you go over, if you, if someone's reviewing an illustration properly, then the PUA expense charge is accounted for in the numbers you see, right? It's not, well, I shouldn't speak for anybody else. It's not as if it's hidden, right? It's there and it varies. It's a percentage and it's different company to company. Some are extreme, others are modest, more reasonable, but it's there and there's nothing tricky about it, right? It's a standard fee for the ability to pay a PUA premium, which purchases additional death benefit. And in this article that I wrote recently, I explained, I think it's important. I know when we start talking about present values, people's eyes start to roll back in their skulls. But if people understood the relationship between death benefit, unpaid premium, and cash value, then we'd solve a whole lot of problems, right? The cash value is the net present value of the death benefit it's the present value of the future death benefit less the present value of all unpaid premiums right so if you buy additional death benefit 
without contributing to the unpaid premiums, right? Because PUA premium is paid up. There's no additional premium required to keep that new death benefit on the contract. If you increase the magnitude of that future cash flow of that future death benefit without contributing to its cost, without contributing to the unpaid premium, it must be the case that the present value of that future outflow of that future death benefit goes up. Right, has to be the case. That's why when you pay a PUA <laughs> premium, the death benefit goes up, and so does the cash value. Right, you're you're you on your own are increasing the future magnitude of that death benefit, and in so doing, it must be the case that the net present value of that number also goes up. Right, that's what's happening with the pure PUA rider. Now that is a great interpretation of a formula that all these life insurance companies use to price their product. That was very well done, is all I'm saying. Very well done. Okay, so let me recap some of this. There is, in Nelson's book, Becoming Your Own Banker, which he would not have put illustrations in if he were to redo the book before he graduated, but he did, because of the confusion that it adds. All right, but in all of the policies that he illustrated, there were two components to the policy. There was a base premium, a base whole life premium. I'm buying whole life insurance. And he either used paid up to age 65 or paid to 100, typically. Okay. No, actually. Okay. Um, there was no term riders on there. And I don't believe it. I, I know that P, blended PUAs did not exist yeah. at the time. And he was full aware of a blended PUA and how they were constructed before he graduated. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he still wouldn't have used them, my opinion. Um, okay. Now we, and the book was printed in 2000. Interest rates have come down. Dividends have come down. Here we are in 2020. Um, And I don't know when the blended PUA riders were created, but they were created by the life insurance company to accept unequal premium cash flows. Okay. And it's really, they're like, oh, this infinite banking concept. Some of them, not all of them. But it's like, oh, yeah, we should come up with a blended PUA rider. So you could put a gazillion dollars in in year one. Mm Mm-hmm and half a gazillion in year two in the policy not mech. Okay, all right. So across the industry, the, the PUA riders have different names and, and we're talking specifically originally the PUA rider had no term component to it. So you mentioned it was a pure paid mm-hmm. up additions rider. Okay, so now the industry has created these blended PUA riders and, and there's really a, almost a different variation for each company. Yeah. All right. Okay. So the premium is paid. There's a cost to that rider. Um, and it's an expense charge because it buys some death benefit. And then, and then the net premium goes to cash value. So every PUA rider has an expense charge. And they're not always fully and clearly disclosed, easily accessible right. to the consumer. Uh, some of them are as high as 14%. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> and now some of the blended PUA riders, they buy, you're, you're buying like a, a set death benefit, like a million dollars in term is an example. Okay. So the blended, P, the blended PUA term rider blends a pure, a pure PUA rider 
with a term writer. A term. Together. Yeah. And the same writer. Blended. Right. That's what we mean by blended. Combines the ability to pay a PUA premium, also combines term. It's a very specific kind of term. So the, the terminology varies from company to company. But what I found is that what doesn't vary very often is the nature of that term product that's blended with the PUA, right? And this is very important. Okay, it's, it's called one year annually renewable term life insurance. One year annually renewable. Okay, annually renewable. It's going to renew every year with new premium. Because I had a birthday. I yep. took one more revolution. And what? The and pray tell, what's going to happen? Got one year closer to mortality. Mm. Mm. So what, are you saying the mortality expense is going to increase? I'm saying the cost of that death benefit does go up. So the term. premium Ooh. must increase. And do we know, do we know just how much that premium is going to increase year to year? No, but there will be in the contract a maximum charge that they could charge. Okay. Still uncertain, right? Very uncertain. Who, and then in every contract you find this annual renewable term is non-guaranteed, right? Non-guaranteed means that you, the consumer, are accepting the risk for the future change in the price of that premium. By contract. And it's, you're expressly agreeing that the company has the right to change the price of that premium out into the future. So as soon that as the, never happens, as right. soon as the calendar page turns, the current experience of the company changes, the underlying infrastructure that illustration has changed, and the company has the ability to change what the premium is. Right? Okay. So in the past, I think we've explained that you might put a term writer, a pure on its own term writer, on a policy. It, it, for structural reasons, in order to address the possibility yeah. of a modified endowment why, contract. Yes, why is this even done, right? Because there's a relationship between the premium, the cash value, and the death benefit. Yeah. The IRS, and we've talked about this, has looked at life insurance in the late 80s and said, oh my gosh, in collusion with Wall Street and the term promoters, said that whole life insurance is a tax loophole for the rich because the bond promoters couldn't compete with, at that time, single premium life insurance. Wall Street couldn't compete. And right in the term, com promoters couldn't compete. And oh my gosh, Congress is always looking for somebody else's money because they don't have any money. So this is a tax loophole for the rich. So they limited what you can pay in life insurance premium. And then they created this relationship between the premium cash value and the death benefit. And if you exceed these limits, then it becomes a modified endowment contract, a mm -hmm. mech in the industry, which just changes the tax treatment of life insurance. And we can have a whole For episode on the tax treatment of life insurance. Is it a tax benefit? Is it appropriately taxed? Or is it a loophole? Or is it a tax break? Is it a tax scheme? And oh my gosh, life insurance predates the Internal Revenue Code. <laughs> it is not an exception to the Internal Revenue Code. An exception to the Internal Revenue Code is a qualified retirement plan. Life insurance predates that, okay? And then, life insurance is not an investment. It is a replacement of a loss. If you go wreck your car tomorrow and you get a claim check, are you going to have to pay taxes on that claim check? No. no. It's like, oh my gosh, the greed of government is has no bounds, there's a lot of advisors out there who oh contribute to that noise about life insurance being an investment. It is not. It's an not investment. an investment. All right. <clears throat> okay. So 
look. Going back to the term rider, there's a place for a term rider in order to get it, a certain proportion of premium into the PUA. We want a high premium and a high cash value without becoming a modified endowment contract, right. which requires an increased death benefit. Right. Which. So that's why the term is there, right? Yes. Okay. So if we need the term in order to avoid a mech in certain cases, and if we then give the company the right to change the price of the term, thereby receiving back, shifting back, shifting the risk of that future price increase back to the consumer, in my view, we have set the stage for a time in the future where potentially that term writer or that blended PUA term writer is necessary to preserve the non-modified endowment contract status but on the other hand, the company decides to exercise its contractual authority to increase the premium. Okay, Mr. and Mrs. Client, what what do you want to do now? You want to accept the high premium on the term, which by the way, doesn't contribute to cash value, or do you want the modified endowment contract status? Hmm. <clears throat> there are so many things wrong with that. It's very it's legitimate, but a continuation of that, <clears throat> look, it's, it's, the term is used to have a high cash value. Right. If you use a standalone term, 10-year, 7-year, 15, 20, 30-year term, those prices are guaranteed. Right? And you can drop the term <clears throat> if you so choose at any time in the future. All right? This is very um, intentional. The, the blended PUA, right, you either, if you pay the premium, it internally buys the death benefit. And some of them, um, you know, use the PUA dividend to pay for that term. That's a whole nother Wait thing. Well, the dividend's the dividend. not guaranteed. Okay, so, I mean, if you think these things through, but what does it do? What is it, you know, what, they were created by the life insurance companies. There's nothing in Nelson Nash's book that was created by the life insurance companies except for the life insurance product that he used to demonstrate how you could become your own banker, right? No. And so um, most of the policies that Nelson built were not weighted to the PUA because the PUA didn't exist, the, the, the PUA rider, right? Okay, my point being is the life insurance companies look and say, oh my gosh, this is, we want some of that infinite banking business. We'll create some of those you know, blended riders to accept this large premium and internally buy enough death benefit to avoid the MEC. So it makes the first year cash values look very good. The term has a cost and you bought that ability. You paid for that ability to front load that policy. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, you know, I, it, could, it could absolutely work. I'm gonna sell a business next year for a million dollars and then I'm gonna be broke every year after that. You can make a case for a blended PUA <laughs> rider, okay? I'm just saying, and you can really make a case for anything. Okay, now if the, the death benefit is one year term that goes up and it's going to be paid for with a non-guaranteed dividend. I mean, don't you feel like you're a little bit being manipulated? All it is is a, all of these mechanations or different new products or writers in my mind are just ways for the insurance companies to shift risk back to the individual and still call the product life insurance. Yes, no question. Violating the principle of life insurance. <clears throat> and so let's, but let's continue on on that. It, it looks like if I did that, if I bought a blended PUA, a policy with a blended PUA rider, 
I can illustrate and, and have a very high first year cash value, right? Um, and it looks very good. But whenever you use this relationship of the MEC, there's a seven pay, initial seven pay test, the modified endowment contract, this premium death benefit cash value, right? And there's a big long formula, 7702 in the Internal Revenue Code, which I'm not gonna get into. I mean, I'm like, the re- my conveyance is a relationship the I, what you're saying is the IRS tests a given life insurance policy by examining seven-year periods using what they call the seven-pay test, yeah. right? And that what they're checking for is to see if the cash value rises relative to the death benefit too quickly, right? In violation yeah, of much. their particular it's formula. Like, right. And there's a the initial seven-pay test, and then there's a rolling MEC test. Every year, the, internally, these life insurance Keeps companies going. are MEC testing. Okay. And so the further out you go on these Frankenstein policies, and I spoke about these Frankenstein policies three or four years In ago. 2018, yeah. Two years ago. All right. And to a room full of advisors, and, and God, I love you for being there, being present and listening, but I want you to know, and I've talked to many of you since then, not many, but a lot of you. I'm on the stage talking to a room full of advisors and they look like a deer in the headlights. Like yeah. I did not, they did yeah. not know what I was talking about. Yeah. And which pains me somewhat, which was, um, I took those feelings and I wrapped them up and I included them in my last presentation <laughs> at the Nelson Nash think think tank. And I'm admonishing in, in a gentle, loving way, but encouraging the practitioners to increase their level of knowledge and understanding okay all right um the when the further out you go those policies have mech issues why would they have a mech issue why would there be a mech issue right because this internal rolling seven pay test you're buying a high death benefit with term riders and the whole idea um it's almost like <clears throat> excuse me, um, universal life, right? In which all you uh, agents that listen to this podcast, I'm not interested in your love of universal life. God bless you. Keep learning, okay? Um, and that's in love, sin- sincerely, right? If you want an illustration that illustrates the best without mecking, without any problems, the universal life illustration is going to look the best, Right. The second best is going to be these contorted Frankenstein policies, mm. right? And there's there's a result, an end result of all of these variations, mm-hmm. these machinations, right, that are violating everything that Nelson taught and stood for. And the problems are going to be future problems, probably at a point in time when you can't correct it right, or have no desire to correct it. And some of the problems can be tragic. I'm mm-hmm. talking about taxable events in future years. There's no way that these policies are gonna produce an income and a death benefit. I don't care what you say. And even in my talk in Nashville or uh, Birmingham, I asked I asked if there were any actuaries in the room, right? There were some home office people in the room, but I asked specifically if there were any actuaries as I'm going through this. Of course, there was none. But that one home office person could dispute what I was saying because what I was saying and what we're saying is factual and true. Okay, um, I can go on, but my point being is, the internal rate of return does not go up on those illustrations, even if they performed as illustrated, which they cannot. They're going to mech in the future after the seventh year, after the tenth year, in the eleventh year, and beyond. And um, we talk about this all the time because all of these videos that are popping up on 
my left, your right, talk a, a lot of them talk about all of these variations, universal, lie, 90, 10, pay seven, and no more, pay four, and, and my encouragement is to, you know, educate yourself, you know, read yeah. Nelson's work. I want to take, I want to zoom out a little bit because the, uh, <laughs> I know it's comp, I mean, these, these are complex topics and it's, and we're explaining, I mean, I don't hear anybody else doing it, so at least we're in the arena, but explaining fairly complex industry terminology. And, you know, I don't, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, I don't expect anybody to become a master or doctor of life insurance. And so I like to take it back to some very basic initial principles, you know, because these, as you mentioned earlier, these won't be the last iterations of the noise. Oh, absolutely. There will be more. Uh, and so a couple of things, Nelson's principles and then just the framework on illustrations. I mean, we talked about illustrations ad infinitum on here, but uh, illustrations are not contracts. And as soon as you start throwing all these special writers in order to Im improve the quote unquote so-called performance of that policy, that illustration no longer becomes a healthy, beneficial financial planning tool. It becomes a sales tool and it's just a marketing document. That's and, exactly what that is. And so just know that if you know someone's putting that in front of you or maybe you're an advisor using illustrations in that way, uh, you know, that's what you, that that's the world you're in. It's out of the education world into the marketing world. Frankly, uh, I don't have interest in that personally. And I've had I have a client, well, prospect, maybe a suspect right now who's kind of you know going back and forth with me and you know wants to see this or that kind of iteration. Well, how much and, of that are you going to put up with? Um, I'm six five and I've had about it up to my eyeballs <laughs> right now. So I, you know, it. That's, well, is he sincere? If they're sincere, I mean, I. Listen, I tell people, if you want to get in my process, great. You know, I encourage you to spend all the time that you want to spend vetting. And if you're in a, a part of another agent's process, then good. And, and, you know, be involved in that process. See it through to a satisfactory end, right? Maybe that means you acquire a policy. Maybe it means you exit, but see it through, right? And then when you're ready, when you, and it's time to execute, we can talk, right? And so this person had said that, you know, they weren't, didn't have, weren't working with anybody else. They wanted to move forward and, you know, but, but then we're in this world where you've got, like you said, over here to the left, all the, you know, spammy, stalkerish social media ads. And it's like, okay, maybe they're not actively engaged directly with another advisor, but they're still listening oh, yeah. to what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. And look, I'm not telling you, you don't listen to whatever you want and spend as much time as you want. But I don't have an interest in coaching that agent through you, no right? Because you, they're just going to take what I tell them over there, and then you're gonna, we're going to go back and forth, and a policy will never be issued, a premium will never get paid, <laughs> cash value won't be built, this market's going to correct at some point, and whatever capital you might have accumulated in a correlated asset will fall through the floor, right? Well, so we can spend as much time. Educated. We can spend as much time doing that as we want, right? Okay, so to. To take a simple, like you said in your talk, to take a, a decoder and to be, to be able to identify the noise, understand that an illustration that's riddled with these special writers in order to pr improve the so-called performance of the policy are just sales tools. And I want to make a note about that idea of performance. I don't like <clears throat> when we discuss or the industry discusses 
cash value whole life insurance. They might not call it an investment, but they go on to talk about it and use the terminology of investing, right? We talk sure. about a rate of return. Okay, when, when you say rate of return, sure, a, a, a premium, I'm sorry, a dividend is a return of premium. I get that the word return is in there, right? But when people, <laughs> see, when people hear rate of return, they are thinking in terms of, well, the amount I get back, the amount of money I receive, relative to the, the principle of what I invested. That's what people are thinking of when they think of rate sure. of return. That is not what's going on in dividend paying whole life Did insurance. Did I earn 6% on the dividend? Did I earn 5% on the dividend? That terminology just yeah. screams to me, I've yet to leave the conventional financial paradigm. I've sure. yet to make the shift into thinking in terms of capital and thinking in terms of becoming your own banker, right? So I, again, just more things to, to recognize, to, to be able to notice when we're out in the noise, right? That well, kind listen, of language. The agent and advisor, this idea of dividends, right, has, mm -hmm. is over 150, 200 years old. And the idea of life insurance companies competing against each other on like the basis of a dividend scale this company paid a greater dividend. My company paid a bigger dividend than your company. A, a, a larger percentage of a gross dividend scale, right? Very specific. Not the not the dividend you received. No right? question. Now, we think in terms of percentages. We think in terms of what I'm getting relative to what I paid in. You tell someone that you're, the dividend's going to be five point two or six point eight or whatever the a gross dividend scale is they're between 4.25 and 6.1 show me 20, where 20. show me where on someone's policy that particular percentage pops out they can't can't do it the agent advisor can't and then the, then it gets into a situation well i thought this i thought that and from the agent and advisor standpoint you know uh, 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 and then they're scratching their head and like, how do i explain this to the client how do i do this how do i do that well you, you don't clearly have a you don't have a clear understanding of what a dividend is Right. This is anyway. I'm just saying that that is it's a all all of the most of the life insurance companies, not even all of them. Most of the life insurance companies declare and publish their declared dividend scale each year, right? And if a company is has declared a six point one and another company has declared a four point five, well, the assumption from the hucksters. And the promotion of the hucksters is, well, this higher dividend is better because it's a bigger number. Six is bigger than four. 6.1 is bigger How than 4.5. I mean, are we like... I know. I'm just saying. And so if you're hearing that and you don't know, well, of course, I want a higher rate of return. I want the larger dividend. And then the idea that um, a company size has any determination on a decision-making process of where you're going to put money is like, oh my gosh, it's so simple right? Well, bigger is better. No, bigger is not always better. Does that mean smaller is best? No. Um, I just want a contract. Just give me a unilateral, legally enforceable contract. With a well-run mutual company. All right. Well, what does that Lengthy mean? Lengthy history of dividend James, payment. what does that mean? Well-run mutual company. They're all, most of them, all of them are over 100 years old. They're all A or A plus rated or the majority of them. They all have paid dividends forever, right? And then the dividend scales are all 
mostly all legitimate. They fluctuate in concert with each other over time. Right. Some years, some are higher. <clears throat> other years, others are lower. What year do you want the dividend to be the highest adjusted gross dividend scale for that particular company? My question. Year 20, year 30, 40, 50. Yeah. It's uh, going to fluctuate. I use, I ask a question uh, similar to that almost daily. In what year would you like your policy or policies to perform the best in? And I know performance may be a, an investment type of term. For you and your family, whatever it is you're doing, which year would you like them to be optimal? The first year? The second year? The 10th year? The seventh year? The year, the unknown year in which you graduate. You tell me. And everyone to the person says, well, James, I don't know how to answer that question. And I say, thank you very much. The correct answer is every year that I own it. Yeah. Right. I'm and more efficient year to year, more efficient over time. If it's structured as Nelson structured it, <laughs> thank you. If we get back to this blended PUA, if you, the insurance companies love that construct because the future death benefit is likely going to be lower than the current death benefit. Yeah. Why? Because there's a term component to that, a blended PUA. There's a there's a term component they've built to they, that PUA. They've built in an uncertain future cost of a death benefit that's pinned to the rising mortality but expense. That, that, of course the future death benefit's gonna go down. <laughs> exactly. Well, what does that mean? Their obligation. There's only two obligations of the life insurance company once a contract is issued. I mean, they have to fulfill the contract. I get that. And they do. Future cash values and future death benefits. Guaranteed obligations to the life insurance company. Now, if I'm a life insurance company and I'm not, God bless them, would I want my guaranteed obligations to go down into the future? Yes. When you look at a policy structured correctly, the cash value goes up forever until you graduate. The death benefit ultimately is greater at natural mortality than in the beginning. Even if you use a correctly uh, design policy, if you're using a term rider with mm, a correctly a designed term, policy. Yeah. Okay. So I rest my case. And this is, this. I'll, I believe this might be an episode that you would want to listen to more than once. And you, agent, insurance agent, advisor, and I'm not calling you out. You know you're listening. We know you're listening. Do your homework. And thank you for all the nice comments. Uh, we love you. It's we really do get love. a lot of nice comments. We do. I just, get, I just get fired up because I'm, they're People who are either in my process or what really gets me are my current people, premium paying clients with well-structured, properly structured dividend paying whole life policies who hear some of this noise online and there's going to be new noise all the time. And then they get concerned sure. that they you know, fear missing out, right? And that, so that now they're worried that what they have is not optimal for their purpose. And so we have to go, and it's okay, I don't mind going back, but it's like, no, that it, it irritates me that other people are causing those with legitimate, bona fide, well-structured policies to be concerned or to be fearful. Well, they're getting paid, right? <laughs> and then and half, of, half of that whole uh, huckster promotion in uh, I love the word huckster because if it walks like a duck, acts like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. It, they're hucksters. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, you know, I'm helping you identify a huckster. Okay, so I'm just saying you're welcome. Look, they say part of it is, um, 
Well, if it's built any other way, it's because the agent wants to get paid more money. They're yeah. building it for commissions, which, you know, the idea of even commissions is like a bad thing, right? Well, that's why I don't like, I mean, it's true that the, the various marketing tactics make the sale easier for the agent. It makes it more likely that they're going to get paid in the present. But I don't like the accusation that, oh, it's just because they're trying to get paid. We're all trying to get paid. Everybody's trying to get paid. Let's just be honest about it. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with that. And I think there's something wrong with, with the notion that using those tactics, using the illustration as a sales tool, applying all these riders to make the cash value relative to the premium, quote unquote, look better, indexing the dividend, using the dividend to pay the base premium, all these various <laughs> oh my gosh. schemes and programs that are meant to facilitate the sale, make it easier for you to say yes. like. The, the idea that that's actually the way to improve long-term revenue generation, I think is false. Because at some point, you keep Googling IBC enough, you're gonna come across Banking With Life. You're gonna come across my Medium blog. You're going to read these things, right? You're and gonna come across the Nelson Nash Institute. Eventually, it's gonna happen. If, the, if your people stay interested and stay engaged long enough, they're going to discover that there's another approach, right, that returns guaranteed contractual authority to the individual that properly shifts the risk of early mortality to the life insurance company, which is their proper role, right, a pooling of risk. Uh, they're gonna hear it eventually, and I don't know how long people are going to stick around for the next marketing tactic, right? Mm -hmm. I, think, I think people, I, I choose to believe, and I think it's genuinely the truth that those who come across things related to quote unquote banking with life insurance or the infant banking concept, I really do believe they want to find the source. No they question. want to get to Nelson Nash. Yes. They want to get to the originator, yes. the guy who discovered it, wrote about it, was the first who taught it. They want to get there, and what? The, and they want a, a policy that aligns with what Nelson taught. Yes. I really believe that. I do too. And so eventually, they're going to get to the point where it's like, oh, that's noise. That's noise. That's noise. And what's well, and eventually, it's happening now? Hey, hey, Ryan, I was working with so and so, but. Yeah such and such happened or I'm disappointed for this reason. They didn't want to help me try to pay as much premium as I can't tell you how often I get that one, but I want to pay more premium and they didn't want to, they didn't know how to work with me. It's like, <laughs> all right, just make sure, you know, everything's straight up. I don't want to shark anybody's clients. I don't make any calls to anybody. People call me and every single client gets the same spiel. Make sure they know that you're no longer in their process, right? Because once you, we gonna go to work, okay? If you're gonna get in my, we're gonna, a policy will be enforced and premiums gonna get paid. You're gonna accumulate some cash value and you're gonna start financing the things that you were gonna finance anyway. It will happen. I'm very serious about this, right? So just make sure everybody else knows that you're now in somebody else's process, right? Sounds like you're sharking clients, young man. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Listen, when were you not very serious? Oh, I mean, I'm 27. As a toddler. Very serious as a toddler. You should see some of his baby photos. <laughs> like, I, do have, I do have very serious baby <laughs> photos. Very serious. Right, look, I, I want to say, too, that, um, you know, on this, this blended uh, PUA, um, it looks really good. 
right? And and I don't even think they know what they're doing. There's either there's really, in my opinion, two kinds of agents and advisors out in the big world, big wide world. They those who know. watch banking with life and those who don't, <laughs> <laughs> probably. Are you saying those Sorry. are those who are informed and those who are not? Mm-hmm. No. Um, there's the agent advisor that that knows what happens with the universal life over time, and then there's the ones who do not. The ones who know what happens with the universal life over time and still promote it, then I question beyond their intelligence. Mm. I, I question their integrity. <clears throat> um, so and that's just me, and that's my opinion. Um, well, I think like many clients mm-hmm. who want to purchase policies that align with what Nelson taught, I do think that the vast majority of advisors want to teach what Nelson taught and that they truly mm-hmm. just don't know. I, I really want to believe that. It's assuming but angelic intentions. Yeah, <laughs> Walk which, with me. <laughs> I, the ones I talk to, I mean, there's a certain... Well, the ones you talk yeah, the ones I talk to, I believe that. Yeah. Uh, and I try not to talk to very many agents and advisors <laughs> on purpose, you know. Um, so, well, well, let me let me say, too, that... Um, they're going to find out eventually. I think when somebody discovers, they get exposed to this idea, the infinite banking concept, there's no question. The, I think the one that's diligent, right? And the one that, that has this need to know the search for knowledge takes them to the Nelson Nash Institute. Yeah. Okay. Um, but there's a lot that I, I experience a lot of people that say, wow, I did this. Then I discovered the podcast. Banking with Life podcast. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying, I've experienced. It's completely true. Yeah. Can I can you fix this? And I wish I was not or I wish I was in the position less often of fixing, correcting problems. You know, so eventually that's, that's yes, hard you get to the truth. Yeah. You do get to the truth eventually. I'm trying to say, look, some of this stuff over here on my left, on your right. And I know this is how you probably found this podcast. It was a recommended um, yeah. video. Um, you should go to the Nelson Nash Institute. You should buy Becoming Your Own Banker. If somebody says you, sh- you don't have to read a book, you should swap left on them post haste. Mm. Right? So you should buy Nelson Nash's first book, Becoming Your Own Banker. His second book, Building Your Warehouse of Wealth. You should buy the DVD, Banking with Life. Yes, that's a self-promotion. You should buy the 10-hour seminar at Nelson Nash, the Nelson Nash Institute, infinitebanking.org. All right. It's Nelson okay to Nash. use our link so they know where you came from. Yeah, I'm the links saying. will be down here. Yeah, throw us a prop. Tell David that, you know, Ryan and James sent you, all right? Um, and we know it's $200. It's worth it. Especially for people who are current enforced policy owners. I can't think of a better way to practice with the policy loan than to – Ask for a two hundred dollar policy loan to go finance the purchase of you Nelson's seminar. Finance your education. Listen, Nelson graduated. If you haven't heard him, if you have not had the opportunity to hear him in ten hours, look, you're not ever going to have the opportunity again unless you buy that. You know, because until the next life, right? And we're probably not going to yeah. be talking about banking in the next life. <laughs> no. Okay, I'm just saying that is a short route to an education. Yeah. Uh, and, and I appreciate you watching and listening. If you want a continuing education, in my opinion, you have landed on the correct site. Right. And then the Ryan's Medium blogs, there'll be links below. Um, absorb all that. 
I promise you, you don't have to buy anything. You'll want to. If this resonates with you, you will want to call us. You will want to engage with us. And that's not saying that, you know, there's not a, a hundred other competent people out there. But, you know, that's my that's my promotion. While we're on the point of other and resources. I answer my phone. He just he answers his phone too. I answer he answers scheduled his late at calls. Night. I'm gonna put your cell phone in the notes. Okay. <laughs> Uh, while we're his, on the subject, since we're here in early 2020, you know, where the stock market's doing all the things it's doing, you know, there's the, we have the specter of the coronavirus out there, you know, Ooh, these just schools are say, shutting down, events yeah, are shutting yeah, down. Yeah. I don't even like talking about I'm it. I'm licking handrails mm. just to make a point. <laughs> <laughs> My point is that a virus has nothing to do with causing the coming correction. I just want to be on record saying it very directly. All right, you need to go to my website. You need to sign up for my newsletter. It's called The Capitalist. It's free. If you want to go to Facebook, Griggs Capital Strategies, you can find the older versions of past from past months. All right, that's where I spend a lot of my time talking about the economy and why things are happening the way they're happening. You can spend as much time as you want on all the conventional financial mainstream podcasts and news channels and reporters and all that, none of whom have one iota of understanding of Austrian business cycle theory. As you spend as much time as you want, but if you want to get back to the money supply, if you want to get back to understanding why yield curves invert, right? if you've been watching the news, you hear about yield curve inversion, there's a cause for it. I don't see anybody else explaining it, but it's available in my newsletter. Right, So when a year, two years, three years from now, when everybody says no one saw this coming, oh, just just remember <clears throat> this, okay? And it's so it's all there, it's all available. And by the way, the people who are already practicing infinite banking, they don't care. <laughs> question. You know that reminds me. Stories from the front lines today. This is all right, three fourteen Saturday, right? Um, the the markets have been going nuts. You know. Um, Stop trading twice. Hadn't happened in 20-something years. Mm. Okay. Um, oh, wait, and there's huge capital injections around the world. The uh, Bank of England or the ECB lowered rates from 1.5 to 5.5. That's 66% where I live. Okay, I'm just saying. Imagine the elite underestimating their need for capital. Uh, oh, hey, listen, I had I had several calls this week. I, God love, I love my clients. This one guy's like, James, I just wanted to give you a call. And this was like one of the days the market was down a 1,000 or 1,500, whatever it was. He's like, I just wanted to give you a call and let you know that I don't care what the market did today. <laughs> I know your phone's not blowing up because people aren't losing money. And I'm like, thank you very much. And then another gentleman called. And it's just they know they're not losing money. And they're calling me because they knew my phone was not melting down because of the market losses. You. <laughs> you know, I'm like, thanks for thinking about me. You know, <laughs> so yeah, I had a guy, current client. His his mother uh, is a you know has developed a secular faith in her conventional financial advisor, uh, who has told her just shut your eyes and ignore it. Oh you know, my it's gosh. Just a paper loss. These not are not loss. new. These are not new. We did have a conversation before the yeah. mics and everything got turned on in the other room. And of course she's panicking. Of course. What 70 years old, $80,000 loss in her portfolio. How do you tell somebody to stay in it for the long term at 80? Right. How do you tell somebody it's not a real loss. It's a paper loss until you sell. And then you've realized that loss. it's a paper loss. 
Yeah. Well, I think every asset that you own is is uh, valued with digits on a page somewhere. <laughs> I mean, how do you say that? But uh, that's nothing new. They've said that in 2000. They said that in 2008. Yeah, don't worry. It'll come back. You know, and oh, life insurance is the world's worst place to put money. I can't believe you're, you know, you're, you're doing that. I can't believe you're paying how much in premium? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Have you seen what the market's done lately? I bet nobody said that this week. Mm. You know, unless, uh, and I did, well, wait, I had other clients like, James, you think I should take a loan to buy? I'm like, you do whatever you want. Um. I don't give investment advice, you know, except to my engaged clients. But I don't even think the market's appropriately priced as much as oh, it has fallen. Oh, just getting started. You know, I, this is not, now that you're saying that, this is not the one, this is not, this is not the event that everybody is like, oh, yeah. we're going, no, this is it. No, this is not it. Yeah, we're this here, is a test run. We're here in March 2020, and that's, I'll, of I'll edit that out if speaking. I'm wrong. <laughs> no, you won't. Uh, I just want to properly go back to what Nelson taught, properly classify things. That idea that you know it's just a paper loss and it's not a loss until you sell, uh, that's a secular faith. There, more faith is required to swallow that line than the most absurd uh, religious cult. Right? That's... And here's why. Tell us why. Logic that is dependent upon timing is not sufficient logic, right? It's okay to tell someone who's 35, 45, maybe even 50, look, just wait it out. Give it five, give it 10 years. I the market will come back. I don't know. But if we have okay. to, but, I'm just, I, look, okay. I'm, giving the, I'm giving them the best possible, as much rope as they'd like to hang yes, themselves here. But when you get 70, 80 years old, and you tell someone that same line, oh, just wait it out. Just like you said earlier, how long is that, right? So the logic (laughs) of the faith-based response is dependent upon the age of the person to whom it's being told, okay? Just notice that. And we might suggest, when you hear it from that conventional advisor again, uh, well, what do I, and this is what they'll tell you, you know, what do I do when, I, when I'm getting older? They'll say, oh, no, no, no. You know, as you get older, we're going to reallocate the portfolio into more conservative bonds and even cash, right? Okay, and I understand that that's the response. So just understand that what's underneath that is the suggestion that while everybody knows that no one can time the market, Right? No one can call the, the lowest of the lows or the highest of the highs. Right? Despite that, the admonition to you is, oh no, you will be able to call the market. So let's say things are going well when you're 55, right? Okay, is that time to now uh, reallocate to bonds and cash? Hmm, how many people are gonna make that decision? Right. In fact, is the uh, portfolio manager benefiting from trades and your equity portfolio going to be the one calling you to tell you that you should change over to cash and bonds? Well, listen, listen, hmm. listen. Is it is it tactically managed? Is it strategically managed? Maybe is it's it algorithmically managed. Active? And I'm sure the algorithms get it right. Is you know? it passive? Are we basing it on the efficient frontier? 
the efficient market frontier. What Harry Markowitz? What is it? The efficient, efficient market, market hypothesis. Oh my gosh! And Cap M, Eugene Fama, but and Bill Sharp, Cap M. But so I'm just I'm just saying that underneath that response to oh, as you get older, we need to get you into more mm-hmm. conservative assets assumes that you or that advisor who again knows nothing about Austrian business cycle theory will be able to call the the peak and the trough in the market, mm-hmm. right? And okay. You know, again, it's a secular faith. Could that happen? Could that be right? It's possible. Now, you know, it's, with God, all things are possible. You know, but just understand that that's the that's the bedrock. That's the foundation upon which that decision's being made, right? Uh, and there's yeah. nothing guaranteed about it. Yeah, I have uh, often said or asked the question. Um, I ask a lot of questions, right? but most of them are easy and none of them are trick questions, okay? Would you, or could you agree with me that a definition of risk is the probability of loss? Sure. Okay, now let's think that through. That you want me to put my money into the market and expose it to the probability of loss. And then conventional thinking says, the longer I leave my capital exposed to the probability of loss, I'm going to win, and I'm going to pay for that privilege. I, that's a legitimate question. So, um, and then, you know, you mentioned bonds. You know, um, asset allocation. The older that we get, we'll move more to the fixed position. Um, which I, I'm okay with simplicity, brevity, clarity, and um, less volatility as I get older. Right, I'm 56, um, and I'm still quite active, work out three days a week, legitimately, so it's not like I'm lazy or not paying attention or trying to disengage in any way. I'm not. Um, but as we look at a portfolio, equities, volatility, bonds, fixed position, cash, cash equivalents, Right, now, just think about that. The older that we get, because back in the day, it was 60, 40, 60 equities, you know, 40% bonds. Now they've come out with the target eight bonds. And the further out you go, the further away retirement is, it's just the same um, basis. Maybe you have 80% equities, 20% bonds on target eight bonds in general. Then the closer you get, you know, to your retirement date, the position in bonds increases and the position in equities decrease. Wow. Okay. Now, when I pay money, well, let me, let me say this, that the inverse relationship between interest rates and bond values, right? And I'm not trying to overeducate anybody. You can all do your own homework. But historically, there is an inverse, there is, in fact, an inverse relationship between interest rates and bond values. When interest rates go down, bond values go up, right? When interest rates go up, bond values go down. Now, we're coming out of a 6,000 years of recorded history, low in interest rate environments, and, and if we're trying to go negative, low interest rates, bond values, if interest rates, I don't know, maybe they can go negative forever and, 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 and implode capitalism, maybe. But I think sometime in my retirement, like I said earlier, I'm 56, you know, interest rates are probably going to go up. Hmm. So that means bond values are probably going to go down. I'm just saying, I'm just talking out loud with my friend Ryan. <laughs> All right, now let's think about this. Now, if I pay money, if I pay a premium to a life insurance company and I pay large premiums to several life insurance companies because um, I'm paying attention and I know what I know and I happen to have had the privilege of meeting Nelson Nash. 
15, 16 years ago, 15, whatever. I'm really not that old. All right. When I pay a premium to the life insurance company, they have to put that money to work. Do they pay me? Of course they pay me. They pay everybody in the home office. There's not a soul in there that works pro bono and they're capitalists. All right. Okay. They have to put that money to work to meet the future obligation that I mentioned earlier. Future death benefits, there's a 100% chance, 100% chance that you're going to die. I'm going to die, you're going to die. And we'll meet on the other side. And I look forward to it. Okay, no fear. Um, or there's also an obligation, the future obligation is the cash value. Right? There is a guaranteed component to the cash value. That's a guaranteed obligation to the life insurance company. Now, when I pay a premium today, they have to put all of that money, that capital to work to meet the future obligations and make a profit, of course. Um, but when you talk about, that's a, another whole uh, other episode that we could do. You look at the profits of a life insurance company compared to the profits of the average stock company that's trading in the S&P, the S&P 500, 400, the Dow. Okay, there's a whole... Couldn't even be a sufficient comparison because those companies don't last long enough to make the apples to apples comparison over the long term. <laughs> it would be a hands down comparison. Okay. Where, pray tell, does a life insurance company put all that money to work? Could it be bonds? Government bonds? Corporate bonds? High-grade corporate bonds? Bonds of all durations of... of a 10-year, 20-year, 15, 5-year duration, and then high-grade corporate real estate. Okay, now let's think this through. I'm 56. I love y'all knowing how old I am. It seems that I mention my age quite often. Okay. It's projecting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'm not going to be here for the next 100 years, and I'm probably, I'm probably not going to make it even 50 years. Right, I'd be 106. My people don't live that long. My wife, she'll make it. Not me. I'm Irish. You know, we... All right. If the interest rates go up and the bond values go down, right, um, is it, how, how bad is that going to affect me? The life insurance company is managing these pools of capital over 100-year time periods. You know, whole life used to be written to age 100. Now it's written to age 121. Think about that. There's a buffer of that bond volatility, and you've heard, I've heard for the last three or four years how the bond markets are going to collapse, you know? Okay. I have not lost one hours of sleep, so I'm just saying that- That just means they'll get some of them at a discount. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the, the buffer, my point, for, and thank you for letting me take you through all that thought, but just think, all of that volatility that may or may not happen, I'm buffered from that anyway. And I have contractual access to that cash value to do what I was going to do anyway. Yeah. You said you're okay with like being, having guaranteed footing and being conservative at your age. You know, I'm okay being on guaranteed conservative footing at my age. Right. And I'm okay knowing that there's however many decades God allows me to walk around on this earth of compounded on a guaranteed basis increase in my capital that I can access when I want to use for what I want to repay when I want, if I want for as long as I happen to be here. If I, I'm I okay wish with that. I'd have just, I, I learned this at age 40 or 41. I wish I'd have learned it at your age. But that's a natural reaction to anybody and everyone who learns is, is exposed to the infinite bank concept is like, oh, is it legal? Is it real? How can I have never heard of it before? I wish I'd have heard of this sooner. We're all in that same boat. Well, ever since I learned about it, 
I've been playing catch up. You know, we all are. Yeah, and so, and I don't even want to disparage risk. If you're going to take a risk, if you're going to make an investment, make an investment in yourself. Take a risk in things that you know, maybe you and your own business. Right, put your money where um, you know something about. Right, that's my encouragement. I feel better. Do you feel better? Mm-hmm. It's like you get triggered on the way down here, and it's like a relief for you. It's like a it release. It really is. <laughs> it really is. I'll say this: the one, the final thing that I'll say. This is the last note I had here. Um, you know, in talking about, I had a guy, and I referred to him a few minutes ago, but. You know, he called and he had worked with, had spoken with other advisors. And uh, he plans to acquire this company and forget the exact details. Either there's a lot of equity or there's a lot of cash flow. He knows he's going to be in a position to pay a substantial amount of premium. And he was telling that to these people, to these advisors. And, you know, life insurance companies approach the business from a <coughs> conventional perspective. They're concerned about the relationship between the proposed premium and an individual's income or and the, the, death benefit. And the debt and the, or the relationship between the death benefit and that person's net worth, right? Legitimate concerns. There's financial underwriting, right? There are yeah. limits on how much uh, premium a life insurance company will allow you to pay. Well, and we put, you know, this is all legitimate business. It's, you know, someone's going to have a legitimate premium source. They want to pay a substantial premium that is exceptional. It's unusual. You know, uh, part of the value, what I want to say is that part of the value of working with a specialized expert, someone who focuses on IBC, uh, is that we know how to communicate that justified, bona fide, legitimate need to pay a substantial premium to a life insurance company. And it's, and not everybody, I'm just, this is just a fact. Not everybody shares that skill. And one of the main reasons that a lot of people don't share that skill is because they don't encounter that kind of business, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not every uh, proposed applicant to own life insurance wants to pay as much premium as they can. Right? That is an unusual sort of business for your conventional agent. Yeah. So we talk all the time about how it doesn't make any bit of sense to try and train a conventional agent to go and do the infinite banking concept. This is just one more of a very lengthy list of reasons why. If you, especially if you're a highly productive member of society with substantial cash flow or other accumulated assets that you want to use to pay a premium. You just described my average client. Yeah. And, Thank you. And this ends exactly the same you know it it behooves you to work with someone who can accurately correctly explain to the company why it might be the case that you're asking for the policy you're asking for uh and you get into a policy just like that interview you did with paul cleveland you know just like we all experience you get a few years into a policy you look back at some of those first policies you started it's my gosh i wish the premium was five times as big as it is you know, and once the premium's set, once the limits are set, it's set, right? All that, the, the, uh, the flexibility, the ability to pay premium, the ability to flex your premium year to year, all of that is set during the application phase. So I'm just saying there's a value. If you want to implement the infinite banking concept seriously and rigorously, 
of working with someone who knows how to best present your case to a life insurance company. Well said. That reminds me of Nelson. And I know that there's a lot of people that quote Nelson. Is Um, there? Well, there should be more. I'll say that. Whenever you see what's going on with life insurance structured this way, I say that you literally physically cannot put enough money in. You cannot pay enough premium. You, me, all of us. Once you see what is going on with the life insurance and then you understand the banking function as it exists in your life, you can't, you literally cannot pay enough life insurance premium. But Nelson used to say, whenever you see what's going on, you know what to do. And whenever you build and buy life insurance this away, you're going to be asking for so much death benefit that you can't get it past the underwriter, which is expressly what you're saying Uh in in an eloquent way, Um, telling the story, making the case on behalf of the client, right? Advocating for the client so that they can get what they want. Past, get that case issued and delivered, get it past the underwriter. Yeah, and look, there's nothing manipulative or anything about this. It's going to benefit everybody involved. The life insurance company wants the business. Trust me, they want the business, right? More premium dollars ain't going to hurt their feelings, right? (laughs) There's a, but we have to, you know, here we are, 2020 America, we have to deal with the structure in which the product is sold. Yeah, and we do, and we do. Yeah, of course. We don't do anything that's not above board, completely straightforward and clear. We're not putting anything past the underwriter that can't legitimately get past the underwriter. Um, And nor would we want to. I mean, we own the companies that our clients own. So if you even think that through, um, the companies that I own that I buy policies and have policies with, I bought policies from, it's a mutual company. I mean, I'm, I've got a vested interest in that company being profitable. I don't want to submit anything that's marginal business. Nope. I don't want to use table shaves. If somebody is not standard, I don't want them to receive a preferred rating. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want the, the life insurance company buying business. Um, and we can go on and on about that, but that's that was very well said. So what you're saying... Not to interpret for you, because you can back up, listener, and listen to how he said it very eloquently. But what I heard was Nelson in the back of my mind. You know, you'll wind up asking for so much life insurance, you can't get it past the underwriter. There'll they'll come a point in time when the underwriter says, no, because you're fully insured. That's the terminology is fully insured. Okay, and it's so it's okay now, because yeah. I got a person think, I'm thinking about I'm right in front of my mind right now. Right? It's okay to go out and engage in the economy, to, to engage in business with other people. It's okay to develop legitimate insurable interest yes. in other people. Yes. So that there is proper bona fide basis on which to purchase more life insurance. But it has to be legitimate. If we go in business, there has that business has to be valuated. Yeah. Right? And, the, and the amount of life insurance you can get is restricted by the degree to which you're engaged in business. Yes. There's no and question. The valuation of that business. All I'm saying is it doesn't hurt my feelings to insure the lives of my business partners. No question. 
I mean, there's a natural progression when you start buying life insurance. You know, number one, that we all have a legitimate need for death benefit. Mm -hmm. And in the infinite banking world, you know, I get it. The the disparagement sometimes is too far against the the death benefit. That death benefit is highly valuable. It's legitimate. You know, you need to solve for your need for death benefit first. Mm -hmm. That should be solved for. And then solving for cash, right? But even with a cash value life insurance, you want a legitimate permanent death benefit because it's integral in the workings of that policy, the benefit to you of that policy over your whole lifetime. And we can get into that later. But look, it, it, it seems to me that I heard something this week, a question that uh, about uh, 501c3s or private uh, nonprofit entities, <laughs> yeah. you know, should I go start a nonprofit entity to avoid the mech? I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, you're trying to swallow camels while you're straining at gnats yeah. they play tax games as long as much as you want that's you know? that's it let's wait well, a bunch there. Of red just flags. go become an accountant right oh. just go go re-enroll in university you know i mean if that's where you want to play you know go for it there now is there a legitimate place for legitimate 501c3 organizations to own life insurance structured no, a certain it. kind of way to accomplish purposes of self-funding their operations without having to be dependent upon donors or dependent upon bond sellers Oh my gosh, listen, if you're a 501c3, if you're a nonprofit organization, you should learn the infinite banking concept. You should discover where you might want to consider putting your capital. There's got to be a way to reach those. I mean, I was well, a cost. I mean, I, I mean, go to church. I mean, we're, I associate with people involved in 501c3. It seems to me that I'm just saying, oftentimes, not in every one of them, but the financial decision makers in those organizations, because they are responsible for stewarding the capital they have in that organization are typically uh, ex- extremely, mm, how do we say, skeptical of other potential financial strategies like the infinite banking concept. So it seems to me, my challenge, this is my little confession, right? We're all imperfect. I, I, One of I, my I love the idea and the, the, how I, uh, I almost... Um, people feel like they have a need to confess to me. That's I love what that. I'm doing. <laughs> my, my confession is that it, it's a struggle to reach oh, yeah. and communicate with someone who, I don't want to say that they've arrived, but you know they are appropriately uh, safeguarding, securely stewarding their capital. I just hate to see when that, yeah, uh, does, yeah. that desire to remain conservative also limits their thinking because what can be done for a nonprofit organization, a 501 C three non-income taxable entity with life insurance is ridiculous. It can change the world. Listen, you know, um, I think we're at 120 or 125, but listen, the church world, the evangelical world, the Christian world is surrounded in noise. They've gone through Dave Ramsey, Crown Financial, every Talk about other baptized in noise. <laughs> oh my, no question, they're they're swimming in the noise. And I'm going to say that that listen, um, over my career, I don't know how many uh, members of various congregations that I've had the pleasure of working with, and I'm telling, and I've said it before, an awful lot of my time and over my career in my practice, I've corrected problems, right? And I'm just saying a lot of those problems, listen to the, okay, preacher, listen, I have a lot of evangelists, preachers um, of various denominations and face as clients. I love my clients. I love um, the, the God's workers, okay? But I believe personally 
that if I have to bring in a financial guru and expose my congregation to this noise, it's because I have a lack of faith mm. because you're not giving enough. Mm. Right. So if I get you debt free, that's a proposition that you're going to be in a position to give more money. It's like I could be wrong. I'm not saying I don't want to paint in such broad strokes, but oh, my gosh, I just knocked out an awful lot of (laughs) evangelical (laughs) doctrines out there. And so my point being, they're surrounded in noise and every one of them are building buildings. Building, they're they're supporting. uh, It's a business. Trips around the world. Uh, What do you call those people that go out? Missions. Missions. Missions around the world. Right. Um, Buses. They're all financing that stuff. Every one of them are financing. And every one of them have have boards of deacons or elders or whomever, whatever the structure is. And every one of them are going to graduate and enter Mm. just like all of us. I'm just saying, if, if if a moderate sized church. Moderate. Oh, and not even, I mean, a, a segment of the congregation. Would buy life insurance policies, leave the congregation, the organization, a partial beneficiary, right? And then if the church itself, the organization itself, would buy life insurance policies on all of the members, the deacons, the board members, the elders, whomever they are, Right. And just keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that. You take a moderate congregation of 100 people. I don't know how many die statistically, but, you know, every couple of years, somebody's checking out, graduating. Financially independent. And over and over and over and over. Within two generations. You would, oh my gosh. Then, then maybe, maybe you wouldn't, well. Mm. Mm. You can't buy life. You can't. You can't research this idea quick enough. You. There is true. nowhere else to research it here other than here and becoming your own banker. Ain't nobody else talking about what you can do with IBC at the nonprofit level. I have some. I should bring some clients on as guests and let them talk about what they do. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Okay. Well, thanks for letting me share and put some. That was a good positive note to end on about what's possible in the nonprofit world. Yes, it's only limited by what's between your ears. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, listen, thanks for sharing, Mr. Griggs. You're welcome. All right, have a great day. Thank you for listening. Look forward to the next time. See you all next. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.